Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. Last week, of course, we talked about the law and our relationship with it, which depends upon our relationship with Christ, first and foremost. Uh, so we're getting back to uh, talking about the life of faith and the life of Abraham. And uh, when we talked about that last time, he had just defeated uh, the four kings who had taken Sodom captive, including Lot. So, um, what's wrong? Oh. I see none. Oh, my, he's a big one. <laughs> I've seen bigger, though. I'm not worried about him. What reminds me, of course, of Jonathan Edwards' famous ser- uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when we like spiders dangling from a web over the fires, um, apart from Christ. So um, you might get yours one day. <clears throat> All right. Let's read uh, God's word this morning. After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people. And keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them have their share. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. And why don't we pray? Father, we come this morning after a week of success, failures, and often we don't know how to respond to them. And so I ask that you would speak to us this morning, reminding us of our ongoing need for Christ that you would speak to us of his sufficiency to meet our need, no matter what it is. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the living word who died to bring us life. Amen. It seemed on Facebook this week that all of America was enraptured by what was happening in Chile. As the miners who had been down there for months were being raised to the surface, rescued, alive and well contrary to, in many ways, to our expectations. What struck me, however, since I really didn't follow the coverage, don't know why, I saw a picture. And there were two presidents that were there, one of whom I expected to be there, the president of Chile. But next to him, greeting these miners who were rescued, was the president of Bolivia. I didn't expect to see him there. That's sort of like this text. Two kings came to greet Abram when he returned from his victory over Cayman and all of his friends. 
two. One I expected, and one I didn't expect. Unless, of course, obviously I'd read the text before, but he doesn't seem to make sense why he's there. So let's look at that today and see why it's very important that that mysterious one is there. The big idea this morning is that faith guards God's glory from the schemes of men. And that will hopefully make more sense by the time we're done. The context is that uh, still experiencing the thrill of victory, Abram, who's probably exhausted, arrives and he experiences, he faces a different kind of conflict when he meets these two kings. So that's kind of what's going on in the background here. The first part of this is that God refreshes faith through the promise. We see right here at the very beginning that the king of Sodom has crawled out of his cave where he fled from the armies that have defeated him, and he comes to meet Abram. This is not a word that implies sort of a chance encounter. He's there on purpose. He's there for a reason. But the text stops right there with regard to Sodom, the king of Sodom. We wait to see what his purpose is. Because for some reason, this other mysterious man steps to the forefront and takes on the real brunt of what's going on. He seems to have the most importance in what is going on. This mysterious king of Salem. Who is he? Why is he there? As we heard from the text in Hebrews, his, uh, his name makes sense. It is the king of righteousness. It points to the reality that he, unlike the king of Sodom, was ethical and he was just. He was a holy and righteous man, and he was a king, a ruler of a city. The city that he ruled was Salem, which comes from the word shalom, or peace. And so he was a man of peace. He did not pick a fight. We see here that his city, of course, was not sacked by Cayman and his posse, so to speak, the four kings that came from the north. But what happens, you know, so that's what part of why, why is he here? He's here because he represents someone else. Not his city, but it says that he is priest of Elion, the God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. He comes not as a private individual, but he comes as a representative of the exalted one. That's the idea of the the Most High. Remember, this is a world of polytheism. Not that Melchizedek believed in more than one God. But this was the God who was above all other gods. This was the God who was king. Who ruled. Who made it all. Interesting, though, that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. We don't find that in Israel. That was something that was actually forbidden because... Well, priests came from the line of Levi, specifically through the line of Aaron, and kings came from the line of Judah, specifically David. So it was impossible for a Jew to be both king and priest. Now, kings and priests could also be prophets, but they were forbidden from being you know, a king couldn't be a priest, and a priest couldn't be a king. And we see one example. I mean, this is really an illustration in some ways. Think of it this way. Uh, of the three branches of the U.S. government, you can only be one at a time. 
Okay, uh, a legislator can later become a president, uh, uh, you know, have the executive office, and someone who has the executive office can one day later go back to the legislative office. We see this, but you know, if you're a Supreme Court justice, you can't be either, can you? I can't think of any legislature or executive uh, office holder who became a Supreme Court justice. So think of it it's sort of like that. Think of an example here of Uzziah, king. And overall, he started off as a pretty good king. But one day, he decided to go into the temple and to offer sacrifices. He took to himself the role of a priest, and something very bad happened to Uzziah. He was struck with leprosy. This didn't happen in Israel, this combination of priest and king. Those offices were separate. And yet, when David writes Psalm 110 as not just king, but prophet. He looks ahead. He sees, in the heavenly places, he sees not just the Lord God, but he also sees someone he calls Lord Adonai, his master. David's sitting on the throne, and he sees that he has a master. And part of what is said about this Adonai, his master, is that he will be made a king, sorry, a priest, in the order of Melchizedek. And so we we see that, of course, this is fulfilled in Jesus. That's a lot of what goes on in Hebrews is talking about how Jesus actually fulfills this. So Melchizedek functions as a type of Christ. Now, because of this, some people have said that Melchizedek actually is the pre-incarnate son of God, and there's no evidence for that at all because he was actually the king of a country or a city. So he's a real man about whom we know very little and yet, he was, Jesus was meant to be a high priest in this particular order, this order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek points us to Christ. And so when we read and see what he does, we need to think of what Christ has done for us. And so what we see Melchizedek doing right here is that he breaks out bread and wine. And the word there is food. That's not limited to bread, so it's not like these guys come back from a battle and all they get is some bread and wine. He probably served a great banquet. But he refreshes and he honors Abram and his men with this banquet. Similar to post-game celebration when you've just won the, the championship. You know, the, the bubbly is flying everywhere. There's food that's waiting. There's a big dinner that's going to be held in your honor. There's going to even going to be a parade in a couple of days because you've won something important. That's the idea that is on, going on right here. He is honoring these men for their rescue of these people. And so what he does in the midst here is that he pronounces God's blessing on Abram as a priest. He is pronouncing this blessing upon Abram, which actually is an echo of God's blessing that we read about in Genesis chapter 12. He's reaffirming the blessing. Here it is, interestingly enough, because Abram has had these visions. Okay? Okay? of God blessing him. And now here's a man who comes that he can see, he can touch, he can feel, who's also affirming the blessing. Abram's not crazy. Okay? It wasn't that he had a bad falafel one night and had a strange dream that God was going to bless him. But now we see a real human who is affirming this. A priest of the Most High God is saying, yes, 
you will be blessed by the Most High God, the Creator. That's not where he stops. I'm not excited exactly about how the NIV translates verse 20, because uh, it says, and blessed be. Yes, it's the same verb, barak, to bless, but we see that when a superior does this to an inferior, as it talks about in Hebrews, in the passage that uh, Dick read for us, the superior blesses the inferior. So that is what's going on with Abram, is that Melchizedek is blessing Abram, but when he speaks about God, he's not blessing God, he is praising God. He's not praising Abram, but he is praising God, particularly because he sees, he recognizes that behind all that he could see, that Abram's victory came from the Most High God who put them into Abram's hand. He is honoring God more than he honors Abram. He's honoring Abram. But he says, ultimately, this victory came not from your own hand, but from the hand of the Creator, of the Most High God. It is He who hemmed them in, who blocked them in, so they had no escape. Abram, you fought, but God prevailed. Why do you think Moses put this in there? That's one of the questions you have to keep asking yourself when you're in Genesis. Why did Moses put this in there? Why is that important? I think it's an important lesson for the Israelites, for when they get in the the promised land and they're going to have to remove the Canaanites from the land, they must fight. But ultimately, it must be God who prevails. They must not rely upon their own strength, upon their own power. They must not have confidence in their own ability to do this and get rid of the Canaanites. It is God who must remove the Canaanites through them. The use of means. God's not going to just vaporize the Canaanites and they'll be gone. He will use the Israelites. They must engage in the conflict that God has called them to do. And yet, the victory comes from Him, not them. And so it is in our spiritual battle. When we take this into Ephesians chapter 6, we must fight. We must struggle against sin. We must struggle against these evil powers in the heavenly places. But, we, but the victory is His. The armor is His. The power is His. We do not have self-confidence against the power of sin even in our own lives, but we must look to Him and not to ourselves. We fight but it is He and He alone who prevails. What we see going on here is that God is keeping His promise to Abram. He has blessed Abram. He's made him financially rich. He's also given him a great name through this battle. He is becoming a great man, a man of great reputation, a man others look up to. God's promise is being fulfilled as we continue on through Genesis. And so we have Abram who was weary from conflict. He's tempted with pride and God refreshes Abram through Melchizedek with this echo of the promise that was given to him earlier. Let's look at the second part of this. Abram's response is that faith-driven worship responds responds to grace 
with allegiance. Abram received the promise, and he recognized Melchizedek as God's man for his good. He sees that grace has been bestowed upon him through this person, Melchizedek. Again, this idea of God using means, not directly doing things, but doing this through other parties. This morning I was going, trying to think about examples of this. You know, how does God bless? What has God done in my life through other people? And these are two rather, in the big scheme of things, insignificant things. And yet, these are what fresh on my mind. Your gift to me last week. We're thinking of an adoption, disposable income. Eh, it's going to be a little hard to come by. Fun things like that, not going to happen very much. Okay. I'd put that down as like, oh, man, I want to go to that Celtics game. I'm going to the Celtics game. I've been wanting an iPod. My MP3 player croaked. Yesterday we get home from lunch with uh, the Pixleys and go get the mailbox. And there's a box with my name on it from New Jersey. Huh? There's an iPod. I don't know who sent this iPod, but suddenly God used means to provide things that I wouldn't that I would feel incredibly guilty about getting for myself. These are means. That's just an example. Grace was bestowed upon us through Jesus, our great high priest. So what is the appropriate response to this? Well, we know what these, the response that Abram gave and, and is that he gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. It's interesting to me that some commentators are not sure exactly what he gave him a tenth of. Some say all of his possessions. Well, Abram wasn't at home. <laughs> okay? He didn't have access to all of his possessions. He was returning from the field of battle. And in fact, Hebrews 7 is pretty clear because it, it repeats again. It says, the plunder. That which he gained in the victory, he gave one-tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek. This tribute, or rather tribute in general, was a sign of allegiance to the covenant Lord. In fact, that was the problem that got these other kings of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the rest in big trouble, is that they had stopped sending their tribute to Cayman. And that's why he came to collect what was due to him. And to put down their rebellion. Abram here is acknowledging not just, he's not, he's not coming under the authority of Melchizedek, but he is giving to them, giving to Melchizedek as he is in position of priest of the Most High God. He's showing that his allegiance is to the Lord. And he does this publicly. It's not something that is done secretly. He is recognizing God's deliverance and he reveals his gratitude through this giving of the tithe. And so it reminds us that our trust or our allegiance to God is not a private matter. It's a personal matter, but it's not intended to be a private matter. Others should know where your allegiance lies. How will they know? How do you know? What are the actions that reveal what your lips confess? 
Abram did not just say, the Lord is my God. He proved it in tangible ways. This was just one of the tangible ways which he did. And so we, we see that tithing in this context is a response of faith to grace. Abram is grateful and he's worshiping. He is not buying favor from God, but he, he does this as one who has received the favor of God. That is an important distinction. He's not giving to get, he's giving out of love and joy and trust. I remember one of the, um, I don't have very many memories of my grandmother, but there's one that I just, it's just always there. I don't know why. I was five. I don't know why I would remember this. But I was five. And it was my birthday. And my mother and I had gone down to visit my grandmother, and we were going to lunch. And my grandmother, when we got there, had given me $5. Back in that day, that was a lot for a kid who was five, right? Can't do much with $5 today. But then, it was a king's ransom for a kid my age. So we're going to go to lunch, and my mom has to stop and put gas in the car. Okay, back then, five dollars could buy a whole lot of gas. Not like today. Okay. My grandmother goes, why don't you give the money to your mom to pay for the gas? And if different strokes had been out yet, I would have gone, what are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> this be my birthday money. <laughs> I'm not giving it to anybody. And I always remember that comment. Don't you think I would give you more? I didn't trust. I thought that this was as good as it gets. This was all I'm going to get, and that's it. And if I give this away, then, uh, you know, I'm lost. I have got, there goes my, Christmas, my birthday, so to speak. So often it's a matter of Trust. Thinking that, yes, God provided today, but is he going to provide tomorrow? Do I need to hide away things? Or am I willing to trust him with tomorrow? Am I willing to say that, that he is the same tomorrow as he is today? And respond in kind. And so what happens here is that Abram joyfully humbles himself before God and God's priest and responds to grace with gratitude. Now he returns to Sodom, the king of Sodom. And we find that faith that's centered on the promise rejects shortcuts. So here we have Sodom. He finally steps to the front of this thing. He's probably been watching this whole time, tapping his foot, kind of going, well, maybe he enjoyed the meal. He probably got in on the meal. But, you know, he's, he's got an agenda here. And now it's time for him to, to come to his agenda. But let us keep in mind the contrast between Melchizedek, who was the king of righteousness, and the king of Sodom, the king of a wicked city. What do you think that says about him? He's wicked. If he was righteous, he would be restoring righteousness to a city. But instead, he lets the chaos reign. And since we see Melchizedek as a type of Christ, I think we could legitimately see him as a type of Satan who comes to tempt 
Abram. For a defeated king, kind of like Satan, he sure acts like he's in charge. Kind of like Satan. He's trying to tell Abram what to do rather than showing Abram respect and making a request. His comments are in the imperative. He says, give me the people. You can take the money. Will Abram, in a sense, take the glory? That rightly belongs to God? Will he act as though he is the real victor? If he's the real one who prevailed in this sense? And it reminds me that success is dangerous. Remember Dan Allender came to uh, my seminary at one point for a spiritual life conference, and that was one of the things that kind of struck out to me as, as he talked about the danger of success. And he, at that point, Mark McGuire had just broken the home run record that year. And so he was like, I worry for Mark McGuire. We tend not to think about the danger of success. And I, I see that there are two dangers in success, and they're similar to what we talked about last week with regard to the law, and one of them is pride. Success can lead us into pride into thinking that we don't need God. Look, I just took care of four kings. They're the bad, bad guys on the block, and I just, me and my friends just took them out. Who needs God? On the other hand is fear that can arise. Success can bring in our fears because now we feel like, how did that happen? Can I live up to that? Can I bear this burden? Am I going to fail the next time? And is it going to be ugly? And that's what Dan Allender was talking about with Mark McGuire. The pressure to be someone you're not because you happen to have a success. Success ruins people often through pride. Guy wins a championship. He thinks that there's, he's the best player that ever walked on the face of the earth or he's the best businessman that ever walked on the face of the earth, if it was that kind of success. And he begins to be arrogant and expect preferential treatment, and he becomes an obnoxious jerk. Or it can ruin him through ebbing away at his insecurities, just kind of pounding away. Boom, boom. You're not worth that. You couldn't do that again if you tried. That's all luck, it, you know. God's not going to be nice to you next time. You're not going to have the same fortunate luck next time. And so success really can, can undermine who we are. There's a, there's a, he comes and he sees this temptation. He experiences this temptation through the king of Sodom. Pride says you don't need God in his promise. Fear says God won't come through on his promise. And so Abram is offered a shortcut to greater wealth. And don't think that it was five bucks. He was offered the wealth of Sodom, a city. Imagine if you were offered 
the wealth of a city. What would you do? I think there's a movie called Indecent Proposal based on that premise. What would you do for a million dollars? What's Abram going to do? I think of another person who was offered the wealth of nations. My mind, for some reason, goes to Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and says, Bow the knee and I'll give you everything. A shortcut. Remember, it wasn't his to give. (laughs) And in fact, it wasn't the king of Sodom's to give. The plunder belonged to him, to Abram, not to the king of Sodom, according to the laws, the, the laws and customs of their day. And Satan, the pretender to the throne, offers Jesus everything. If he will just bow the knee, avoid the cross. You really don't want to go there, do you? Have it this way. And so Abram is offered basically God's promise without God. He's offered some of the trappings of the blessing without the one who blesses. But Abram realizes that he has the promise of God and he does not need the wealth of Sodom. As I was pondering that this morning in my office, I was reminded of a comment by Tim Keller in dealing with um, the people, the well-meaning people who say, nice sermon, pastor. And he said, acknowledge it. Honor the people by acknowledging that comment, but don't drink it. Don't base your self-esteem upon it, your identity upon it. Receive it, but don't live for it. Don't make it an idol that it can control you. And so basically that's what Abram is sort of doing here. he's, He's looking to God of the promise as the one he serves. He's not falling into the trap of his newfound celebrity as the one who defeated the four kings. And so Abram says that he swore an oath. Binding oath, not to take anything from the king of Sodom. It's interesting, not a thread, (laughs) not a thong, nothing, however seemingly insignificant, is he going to take from the king of Sodom because he believes that it is God, not the king of Sodom, who will enrich him. And he does not want Sodom, the king of Sodom, to steal God's glory from him. That's what he says. I do not want you to be able to say that you made Abram rich. He does not want this king to steal the glory that belongs to God and God alone. Where on the one hand he receives from Melchizedek, he rejects from the king of Sodom because that is the core issue. Melchizedek honors God. The king of Sodom wants to steal from God glory. And Abram is tempted to steal glory by taking the shortcut in life. And we face the same 
questions every time, all the time rather. We're tempted to live as if God will not help us or that we don't need God's help. And really, it is only this faith that is centered on God's promise that enables us to resist this temptation. And I think that's part of why the text really puts Melchizedek first. Abram needed to hear the, the promise and the blessing so that he could stand up and, and expose the counterfeit and reject the counterfeit. So this is why Ian Duguid says that we are to stay at the cross whether we succeed or whether we fail. Because we still need the ministry of our great high priest even when we succeed. Even when we resist temptation. We still need the ministry of this great high priest, Jesus. And so success is a funny thing. It can spoil some people and destroy others. God provides the means for us to maintain our allegiance to him through the promise. But there is another one who is seeking to destroy us even through our success. And we need Jesus, our high priest, when we succeed. Faith guards God's glory by exalting His name and not ours. Let's pray. Father, like Abraham there, we are tempted by faith, uh, by uh, fear and pride. And both of these things rob you of glory through unbelief. And so I ask that you would grant us faith in our great high priest who loves us and cares for us in our need. I ask that you would strip us of our prideful self-confidence where it is found and that where you find fear that you would remove that fear that we might trust you to keep your promise. Help us to guard your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus who was tempted in all things, yet was without sin, so that he might make all who believe perfect as he himself is perfect. Amen.